empty. Short people in the front. <laughs>
chapter 10 verse 17 says this as Jesus was setting out on a journey a man ran up to him knelt before him and asked good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone you know the commandments do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not bear false witness do not defraud honor your father and mother and the man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but with God it is not, for all things are possible with God. Luke uh, 18 and Matthew 19 both give us parallel accounts. Uh, so all of the synoptic gospels have this story in them, which tells you it's an important one, right? Um, and in the Luke 18 account, we learned that this young man was a ruler, 
probably a synagogue ruler. And in the Matthew 19 account, we learn that he was young. All three accounts tell us that he was rich, but this is why he's called the rich, young ruler, because if you put the Synoptic Gospels together, that's the description we get of him. Um, in verse 17, it says, Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, so I, I would just point out a couple of things about this guy besides the obvious rich young ruler part. Thing number one is he's pretty brave because Jesus at this point is, is already considered an outlaw kind of rabbi by the religious establishment of the time. So think John 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, how does Nicodemus come? Yeah, he comes under the cover of darkness, like, I hope none of my friends find out I'm here to ask Jesus some questions. But this synagogue ruler uh, just runs up in broad daylight, doesn't just, you know, elbow Jesus and ask him some questions, but kneels down in front of him and calls him good teacher and then asks this remarkable question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this suggests that this guy is giving some consideration to the life to come and the state of his own soul. So he's a thoughtful guy. He recognizes Jesus is good. He is brave enough to go and ask this question in broad daylight. Uh, this is every pastor's dream disciple. And in 15 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had anything close to an experience like this, where somebody that ripe for the picking comes, you know, running up and kneel, of course, they don't <laughs> kneel before me, but it's just this enthusiastic about hearing the gospel. That's never happened to me. So Jesus does the right thing and runs him off by saying, why do you call me good in verse 18? No one is good except God alone. So here's the question. Wasn't Jesus good? But come on. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus was good, for those of you who aren't sure, Natalie. He was good, Lori, okay? So the problem isn't that this guy called Jesus good, and Jesus isn't correcting this uh, attribution. He's not saying, I'm not good, only God is good. What he's doing is saying, listen, a high estimation of me is insufficient. That's not going to work. Jesus is either just a teacher in which case he's not good, or he's God. Uh. So why do you call me good? God's good, but if I'm just teacher, then I'm not good. Or if Jesus is God, in that case, he's not just a teacher, right? So the guy's close, but I think what Jesus is doing essentially is letting everyone know that you've got to appreciate that the sick healing, sight restoring, hearing giving, lame, making walk, people feeding, miracle working Jesus is not just a teacher, that he is the son of God and he is far more than good. The other thing I think he's telling this young man is you are not good. Only God is good, right? So Jesus just took all of humanity and put us in the same column. We're all on an equal playing field. None of us are good. And elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, it says all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You're not good. 
and then he proves it. Love this, verse 19. Yes, we're going fast, so if you tune out, you'll miss a lot. You'll have to stay tuned in, because we're just going to fly this morning. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, I'm not good, I'm God, and you're not good, because people aren't. And then he says, but let me answer your question. Uh, let's go to Mount Sinai. Remember the law. Remember what, what Moses was commanded by God to give the people. And everybody knows the Ten Commandments, right? Because we're all well-educated. I think almost, it was every kid here homeschooled, at least at some point? The Mitchells were even homeschooled, right? Lori's like, and that's the problem. <laughs> Garrett, you were not homeschooled. I'm not kidding. Well, I know, but you were not homeschooled. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I wasn't homeschooled either. You, were you ever homeschooled? One year. One year, all right. So we could even say the majority of this room was homeschooled at one point. So, and if it was religious at all, then at some point you had to memorize the Ten Commandments and you forgot them as quickly as you could after passing the test, right? So to help our kids remember the Ten Commandments, here's what I want to do. I just want to split them up. I'm the first person to ever do this. I want to split them up into two groups, okay? The first group we're going to call the Commandments Concerning God, and the second group we'll call the Commandments Concerning One Another. And here's basically what the commandments are. The first set is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second set is love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes him to the second table of the law and says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. That means like don't have a romantic relationship with somebody that you're not married to. Mm -hmm. Kids. I mean, it's more than that, but that's a good start. Mm -hmm. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, and don't disobey your parents. That's, those, that's the second table of the law. That's what, it, that's what, God told Moses, all right? So Natalie, you go find Matthew 5.27. Lori, you go find Matthew 5.21. You're going to read, Lori, you're going to read 21 and 22 of Matthew 5. Natalie, you're going to read 27 and 28 of Matthew 5, but we're going to go in the opposite order that I gave you, your verse. So Lori will go first. Natalie will go second. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the... I don't know that word. Sanhedrin. Oh, that's ruthless. I didn't know that was going to be in there. I'm sorry. Just think Supreme Court. Okay. All right. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. So if you call somebody a moron, you go straight to hell. Isn't that what it said? Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, 5, 27, and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at women with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so Jesus takes this young man to Mount Sinai, and he says, you know the commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, honor your father and mother, don't covet. 
And the next thing that comes out of this guy's mouth makes no sense to us because we understand Matthew 5, 21 through like 35, where Jesus says, it's not really just about what you do outside of your body, it's what's going on in your own heart. All of us know that God doesn't look at external realities, he looks at inward internal realities that other people can't see. So you can pull off kind of righteous projection of yourself in front of other people, but you're not fooling God right? But it's polite to go ahead and fool people. So keep doing that. I'm okay with it. We don't need to just, well, I'm just going to be exactly what I am in my heart. It's better to repress it, but just be aware that God sees every thought that flies through your mind. He knows everything that's going on with you. Now, if the commandments aren't an issue of merely controlling your outward behavior, If God did not give us the commandments just to make you get into rigid compliance with what he wants, why did he give them? Hillary, Romans 7. 7 and 8. Romans 7, 7 and 8. This fever is killing me. Just, shall we say then? Is the law of sin? Maybe? Hold on. That's great. Re- read that again just up to that point. Okay. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? No. No, it came from God. Okay, keep going, Hillary. Uh, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have to come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the sin, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. The the purpose of the law here is not to bring Paul into rigid conformity with what God wants. What's the purpose of the law? And it only involves one person. Paul's talking about this is what the law did for me, and it's not, it wasn't to get his wife to be submissive, it wasn't to get his kid to stop being disrespectful, the law wasn't so that Paul could get more money at work. What was the law for? What was it doing for? Show me my sin. It, it, it had, the, the law's function existed between Paul's head and Paul's heart. That's where it was working the most. As soon as he became aware that God didn't like coveting, he's like, wait, I do that a lot and it's a problem so jesus takes this young man to mount sinai and says here's the second table of the law don't murder don't steal don't commit adultery don't covet honor your father your father and your mother and the design is not for this young man to go oh so i'm fine well so what happens verse 20 back in mark 10 he said to jesus teacher I kept all these things from my youth up. Note that he removes the good moniker this time. So this is a law follower. Jesus was like, why do you call me good? He's like, I'll fix it going forward. (laughs) So he just says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Second thing I would point out to you is that he thinks he's fine relative to the commandments. He's like, yeah, nailing it. No problem. Don't, don't murder. Haven't murdered. Don't commit adultery. I haven't. Don't steal. I don't. Don't covet. Not a problem. Honor your father and mother. Always do. His conscience <clears throat> is clear. 
relatively speaking. I don't think he was lying to Jesus. And nobody in the crowd snickered when he said it. Like if I said it, you guys would be like, (laughs) nobody snickered. He says, yeah, I've kept all these things from my youth up and everybody standing around. Anybody that might have known him is just like, true story. Don't know this man to be a reprobate. So why is his soul uneasy? Because remember, he ran up to Jesus, knelt down, called him good, and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's kept the law, but there's something in him that tells him, The neighbor is mowing. Uh, there's something in him that tells him he's not okay. So uh, what I would like to do now is just ask some, some, some pointed questions. And if you, if you listen to the pointed question that I'm going to ask, I think that God will uh, use this on your heart just a little bit. Even if you've been here before, you've asked this before, you've answered this before because you've been doing Christianity for a long time, Listen to what I'm, what I'm suggesting might be going on, all right? I think it's possible that you and I are working right now to get to where this rich young ruler was when he ran up to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? So it, the, the, I'm suggesting and I'm asking you to think about whether or not you are thinking, if I could just stop doing fill in the blank, I would be okay. So if if I could stop stealing, according to the Matthew 5 interpretation, if I could stop committing adultery, according to the Matthew 5 interpretation, if I could stop murdering my brothers and sisters, according to the Matthew 5 interpretation, if I could stop lusting and disobeying and dishonoring my father and mother, then I would have rest, then I could relax, then I would know that I'm going to be okay. That's, I think, how some of us think. And how we operate. If I could just get to that point, I would be fine. So what is it that Jesus is trying to get this young man to see? Let's look at verse 20 and and 21 and 22. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. First and foremost, this is really important. um, The ever Calvinistic New American Standard Bible translates uh, agapeo to felt a love. And it's the only time in the New Testament when the NASB does that. The word is loved. Jesus loved him and then said these things to him. Mark it down. If you want to take a pen and just scratch out felt A and then just put a D at the end of loved. Yeah. We well, don't have the NASB. We have version. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus loves sinners. He wasn't a big fan of the self-righteous Pharisees, but he loves sinners. Right? We've kind of been over this the last couple of weeks, I think. Second... And almost of equal importance, every commentary I consulted, and and this is not to diss men with letters after their name who are much smarter, much better servants of God than I am, but this makes me so frustrated because I think this is how people miss the gospel. 
Every commentary that I consulted at this point said, aha, Jesus exposed the one thing that the rich young ruler was guilty of. He was a covetous, stealing person. And that's how he got his money. And I'm going, wait a minute. Are we to believe that this young man had never lusted in his heart? Are we to believe that this young man had never dishonored his father, even in his own mind? Never thought, this guy's an idiot. Like every other young man does about his father. Is that what we're supposed to believe? His only problem was he was rich because he was ripping people off. And Jesus got to the bottom of it. (laughs) I don't buy that. That's not what Jesus is trying to illuminate here. He's only guilty of defrauding. That's the point. So as long as you don't do that and you're not rich, you get a head start in the race to eternity. No. What is Jesus calling this young man to do? Go, sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So sell everything. Give up your first love. Give your wealth away to people who need it. Part with whatever is sustaining you, and trust me instead. Is Jesus just a big fan of poverty? Is that what it is? No, he just wants to be first. (laughs) That's it. Do do you understand that you cannot depend on yourself, your works, your money, or your efforts to be saved? Do you understand that? Intellectually. If I could just quit doing this in my heart, if I could just quit doing that in my heart, Mm -hmm. then I would be fine. What must I do is the question to inherit eternal life. And I believe what Jesus is saying is there is literally nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. That's the point. Why does he tell him to go sell everything? Stop being the rich young ruler who keeps all the commandments and just start following Jesus. That's the point. Why does the young man go away grieving? Because if following Jesus is going to cost him everything, then he can't follow Jesus. Everything means his own righteousness. If I've got to lay that down, I can't follow Jesus. Because selling his stuff is analogous with getting rid of his self-righteousness. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus looking around said to his disciples, How hard it will be. For those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Doesn't say it's impossible, says it'll be hard. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, With people it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And I'm sure you've all heard all of the very creative and entertaining ideas about what Jesus meant by a camel going through the eye of a needle, none of which do I think are accurate or meaningful. Jesus is just saying it's difficult to be rich in stuff and poor in spirit. It's tough. It doesn't come very naturally to have lots of stuff and be fine and be aware of your desperate need for grace and mercy. I would say there, there is kind of a matrix 
where you, you could chart out that the more money that you have on earth, the less likely you are to be concerned about your soul. But the problem isn't that God hates rich people. Audrey, Natalia, the problem isn't that God hates rich people. It's not like you're at, you're at an advantage because you're poor. Like Emily and Garrett are not the most righteous people in this room simply because they're both in college and they're newlyweds. That's not what the Bible's saying. The problem is that being temporarily, temporarily, not temporarily, but temporarily wealthy makes it difficult for you to see your spiritual poverty. It's not that the rich are more evil or... <laughs> automatically less spiritually minded. It's that a sense of utter poverty when it comes to righteousness is required in order to believe the gospel. You have to, Natalie, realize your desperate need for Christ's righteousness or you're never going to come to saving faith. It's just not going to happen. The rich young ruler couldn't part with his wealth because he didn't understand the value or the need of abiding with Jesus. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Sell your stuff. Follow me. Get rid of the, the distractions and come with me instead. Why did Jesus tell him to do that? Why does Jesus tell him to sell his stuff if Jesus isn't just into vows of poverty? Because he loved him. I think it's because Jesus never hides the hook and that following Jesus may cost you everything. So taking up your cross and following him is not as fun as getting saved in the modern evangelical church kind of presents it as. It's a life of sorrow. I mean, think about it. When do you, as a believer, okay, just, just the Christians in the room, let's be honest with one another for a minute. When do you finally get on your knees and pray? <laughs> Cancer diagnosis. Parents are sick. Spouse is distant. Friends abandon you. Money is gone. Life starts falling apart. Kids are going wild. Society is collapsing. 401k is evaporating. We're going back to war and your loved ones are gonna be deployed. You've been given months to live. You're in constant pain from illness. You're consumed with anxiety. Your boss is trying to get you fired. If you don't get a vaccine, the government is persecuting you for your faith. You're not sure where your next meal is coming from. Like those are the points where even Christians are like, time to get serious, God. Now I need to do some praying. Now we need to catch up. Look, we haven't talked in a minute, so I got to start back a couple of weeks and just bring you up to speed. Isn't this what happens? Isn't this what we do? Like life starts to hurt and then we're like, oh, that's right. <laughs> that's the priority, right? Right there. And then you get the startling reminder on top of those circumstances that you're going through that you are a sinner. So they're like low key, you kind of deserve whatever you're going through. Right? Sell all your stuff and follow me. When we get to this place where nothing I have is going to help fix this problem, 
Nothing I think I have is going to help fix this problem, and we have nothing to offer God and need something from Him and can find no reason why He should want to have anything to do with us. We begin to appreciate the value of a relationship with Him. And not just what I get from church or from Bible study or from time of prayer, you know, sparsely thrown throughout the week. Jesus is not interested in the rich young ruler just being a poor young nobody. Jesus is interested in making him see his need to be in relationship with him. Sell your stuff. Follow me. And, and, and the whole thing, Jesus takes this encounter and uses it as an opportunity to paint this picture for us so that we can see what the priority is. Be with me. Abide in me. What do you have to put aside in order to follow Jesus? Well, for starters, your own righteousness, because it's not going to help you. It's not doing you an ounce of good. Here's you with all of your righteousness, trying to get into the kingdom of God, trying to buy your way in with deeds of obedience. And Jesus is saying, get rid of that. It's not going to help. It does you no good. Here's Jesus. Lay it down. Lay that burden down. Take up my burden. It's easy and light. Forget that stuff you're hauling around. Follow me instead. This is what we need. This is what I believe we need. Okay? We're hurt. We're, we're uh, like a bit frustrated. We're all a little concerned about the future. What, what's going to happen? We don't know. We don't know. Like even at a church level, we're, we're like homeless right now. Right? Some of us maybe are a little bit nervous about even doing this anymore because of how it has ended up so far. In my contention, Isaiah 58, stop your frantic religious activity and abide with God. Psalm 15, here's who gets to do that. One person, Jesus. He's the only one that meets the requirement. You want to abide with God? Then Jesus is saying, dump all your garbage righteousness and follow me. Be in relationship with me. This is what we need. Go to therapy. Go to the doctor. Go do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm warning you, the issue at the core of your being is that you must want to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ more than you do. All the time. Abiding in Him is worth more than everything else. And we can't be reminded of that enough. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray and we'll sing one more song. Um, let's see. Can I? Aesis, will you just pray for us? Yep. Thanks. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us this time that we can gather together to learn more about you, um, open our hearts and realize how we may think about you. Um, I pray that you keep us safe throughout the rest of this day, the rest of this week, Lord. Um, please uh, bless the following weeks as we uh, you know, select people, uh, may attend a different uh, church, a different area in the coming weeks. I pray that you'd give us all the wisdom and uh, just intellect to make the correct decisions for us and our families, Lord. Um, Amen. Amen. Amen.